Well, today in our world, hate is strong. Let me say it again. Today in our world, hate is strong. In the language of politicians, from protesters on the streets, and many others, whether it's from the streets of Syria to the streets of Baltimore, Chicago, all points in between, even to the streets of Garland, Texas, to our own streets here in our own community, whether it's in language, in words, or whether it's in tone, hate is too often what it's, what's expressed. Whether it's on the news that we see it through the airwaves or on social media, whether it's non-Christian or even Christian. And especially with obsession with security, let me say that again, with the obsession over security in our day, even Christians get moved to excessive hate. Sometimes this is subtle and sometimes it is loud. But hate is never to be the language of the church. As we saw last week, we're to hate injustice. God hates injustice. But we cannot forget love. Through the prophet Micah, we're told that the Lord requires something from us, that we would do justice, but that we would love kindness and walk humbly with God. And so when you think of Christmas... If you were to think of one word to describe what Christmas is about this morning, I want you to think of love. It's the essence of Christmas. It's the tone and the message of Advent. It's the tone, the message, and the language of the kingdom of God. It's a love like no other. It's an uncommon love. And today, I want us to see God's uncommon love. I want us to see how you and I are to practice the same. And so today, what I'd like for us to do is to turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to hang out there and look at a few different sections this morning, but I want us to think of three things this morning. This uncommon love, what is it? What is it? Secondly, what's its starting point? How do, how do we experience this to where it really dramatically changes us? And then thirdly, what does it look like in practice? And so in common love, what is it? Well, let's think about love for a second. How does the world define it? If we look at places like Wikipedia, or uh, did I say that right? Man, my, Wikipedia, whatever. I don't know. Good night. I can't land on anything this morning with my words. You know what I'm talking about. Um, the encyclopedia online. Okay. How does our world describe love? It, it's, it's this feeling of warm, personal attachment. It's this deep affection. It's a it's this thing where we, we like something. We take pleasure or delight in something. We say often, well, I like this thing. But instead of saying I like this thing, we'll say, well, I love that. I love that. And so often that's what love is. Love at times is indulgent. It's at times self-seeking, worldly thinking. At times love is merely human sentiments. That's what the world look at it, at it, at it, it whatever. Okay, good night. Someone... <laughs> 
Someone give me a cup of coffee. No, just <laughs> Sometimes it's, it's sentimental pampering. Sometimes it's mere good feelings toward others. And I'll be honest with you, I, I don't think the enemy wants me to preach this message, but we're going to go at it, all right? But sometimes that's how we see love. But what's true Christian love? What's biblical love? It's very different. It's not a love that you and I are used to. It's not our natural way of doing things. It's an uncommon love. True biblical Christian love is a righteous principle. It it seeks the highest good of others. It is a powerful desire to promote the well-being of someone else. You think about how Paul described what love is. We're familiar with this, whether we've read it, we've heard it at weddings or whatever it may be. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. It does not brag. Love is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomely. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. So let's stop there for a second this morning. This is hard because... We're prone to do that. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. It rejoices, though, with the truth of God. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never fails. And we see in Scripture that this biblical love, it's sacrificial type of love. This love is based on truth. It's uncompromising towards all that is evil. And ultimately, we love For the sake and the purpose of Jesus Christ. We love this way. That's what we're called to do out of faithfulness to God. And so real simply this morning, that's the difference. Our world thinks of love as this mere sentimental pampering. Mere good feelings toward others. But biblical love is beyond that. It's uncommon. Sacrificial. And we see that with Jesus. We see that in the day of his coming. You think about the context which Jesus came to. We saw last week, after Jesus is born, Herod goes nuts. He has babies who are two years and younger slaughtered to death. In the context of his coming, Rome was, in its heyday, having their power with other nations. Tyrant kings practicing injustices, misusing their power. People were impressed. People were enslaved and impoverished. Even the religious were self-seeking out for their own good. And so the context is very similar to the day we live in, with hate being the song of the day, gloom and darkness and despair. And it was in that context that the uncommon love of God is made known in its fullness. You remember the angel of the Lord when he came to Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, and he told them that Mary was pregnant. Do you remember what he said about Jesus? He says that Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save them. John tells us in John 1.14 that the word Jesus Christ, the, the, the explanation of God, the, the reality of God here in flesh has dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory is that the only begotten from the Father, but listen to this, he's full of grace and of truth. And then listen to the reading that Jerry just read for us in 1 John 4, 9 through 10. By this the love of God was manifested. It has been made known to us 
that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the ultimate sacrifice. He took our place for our sins. And so the uncommon love of God, this sacrificial love, this love like any, no other love, is made known to us in God sending Jesus, his son, into the world so that our sins can be forgiven through Jesus, this loving, sacrificial death on the cross for who? Enemies. Enemies. You think about it, the babe in the manger, he came for who? Enemies. Enemies. Who are enemies? The Bible tells us that we're either enemies of God or friends of God. So before we came to know God, the Bible says we are all enemies of God. We're against him, which is all of us, before coming to know the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that's who Jesus came to. That's who God came to. We're enemies. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, opposed to him, against him, Christ died for us. So as we celebrate Advent, as we celebrate Christmas, as we approach Christmas Day, may we remember that God's uncommon love wasn't to those who loved him. It wasn't to those who were just singing out his praises. Yes, it is to, toward them, but it was toward enemies of him. And so here's the question this morning. You and I are called to be sent as Jesus has been sent. Jesus was sent to love enemies. You and I are told in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, that you and I are to go into all nations to make disciples. That means all people, including enemies. Enemies. And so if that's reality, I have a question. A question for me all week. How does a heart get to the point where we can love enemies, where we can love like Jesus did? Where does it all start? And so before we get to this idea of loving like God did, and what does that look like practically, I want us to think through, okay, well, what's the starting point of this? Because if I'm going to love like that, whether it's loving my spouse, whether it's loving somebody at work with the hope of the gospel, I'm going to speak it to him, whether it's greeting someone that I'm really actually afraid to greet them because of maybe baggage or history or things I see in the news, and so why do I want to go up to them and even greet them? I mean, if we're going to get to a point where we say, okay, God, I'm going to take you at this. I'm going to start loving like you did in the way you send your son, then, man, where's the starting point? Because there must be a starting point, otherwise we don't love like that. So I want us to look at this. Look at Matthew 5, verse 3. Because where does this experience of the common love of God, where does it begin? Where does it grow? Where does it continue? But it begins here. Look at Matthew 5, 3. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. 
And I will tell you this, this is where Christian love, this is where biblical love, our experience of uncommon love, this is where it gets started. When one receives Jesus as their Lord and Savior, this uncommon love, when they receive that, um, how do we receive it according to this text? According to this text, it's through bankruptcy. What does it mean to be poor of spirit? It's admitting that your soul is impoverished. That, that literally all you have is indebtedness. That the wages of your sin is death. That's all I have to bring. I don't have anything to bring to the table to God. I don't have anything to offer. I got filthy rags. That's it, right? I'm poor in spirit. And so God says, how blessed are those? How joyful, how happy to the max are those who come to the realization, the understanding that they have nothing to offer to a holy, righteous God. They got nothing to bring. It's what Mark 2, 17 says. As Jesus says, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners, Jesus says. And so we receive Jesus in this uncommon love. And what are we doing? We're admitting, I'm sick. My heart is wicked. And I'm in need of a spiritual physician. It's as Jesus says to a prostitute one day, he says, your sins have been forgiven you. Your faith has saved you. Now go in peace. We receive this uncommon love of Jesus Christ by trusting him for the forgiveness of sins based on what he did for us, purchased for us on the cross. So that you and I can not only experience the uncommon love of God for ourselves, but that we can start loving like he did. And so it begins first admitting that, man, my soul is impoverished. I'm nothing, nothing to bring to the table. And then not only that, look at verse 4, and we're just going to just touch these. We've gone through Matthew before, so we're not going to spend a lot of time here this morning. But look at Matthew 5, 4. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Meaning those who are sorrowful over their sin. They recognize, I'm a sinner and I'm in desperate need of a rescue that only Jesus can bring. And he's going to save me from my sin. That's why he came. And then in Matthew 5, 5, Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. The gentle, who are they? They're the humble, they're the meek. It's recognizing he's the benefactor, I'm the beneficiary. Got nothing to bring, he's got everything I need. Matthew 5, 6 says, Blessed are the, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It's recognizing I'm not right, as Romans 3 tells me, but God is. And the righteousness that I need, I can't muster up. I can't make it happen. I don't bring anything of worth to earn righteousness. But God freely gives it to me. He says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that what? We could become the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. And so my soul thirsts and hungers for that. The merciful. He said, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. This isn't sentimental pampering he's talking about here. This instead is a changed heart that loves with the mercy of God. They deserve my wrath, 
but I'm going to give them love. They deserve a grudge, but instead, I'm going to show grace. That's a changed heart. That's what's happening here. A heart's changing. Look at 5.8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. A pure heart. All of our hearts, the Bible tells us, before coming to Christ are wicked, depraved, dirty, ugly. But God comes and gives us a new heart. He takes a heart of stone, he turns it to a heart of flesh. He takes a dead heart, he causes it to start to beat, make it alive. That's what God does. He gives us a clean heart by the grace of God. In verse 9, he says, Blessed are peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. They're now at peace with God because of this uncommon love of God. And no longer do they want to hate, but they want to spread shalom. They want to propagate shalom as the church. And then look at 10, 11, 12. He said, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. He says, rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Faithful living of the gospel. That's what that is. In the midst of hate. And so here's my question. What kind of heart do we see there? Is a heart that has been saved by grace through faith. Because that's what uncommon love does. It changes one that dramatically. Forever. It's a new way of living. In fact, look at verse 20. Go down a little bit. Verse five, uh, chapter 5, verse 20. He says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus says the religious elite of the day, the top-notch dudes of the day, unless your righteousness goes beyond them, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. And so what, he's, what is he saying? He said, hey, listen, I, there's this new way of living. It's this new way. It's the way of righteousness that only I can offer. It's unhypocritical. But he holds it out. And he says, this new live, way of living can be yours. You trust in me. And it's by faith. It's by faith. It's always been by faith. From the time of Abraham to today. Don't let these religious elitists confuse you and get you off track. Jesus says there is a new way of living. It's by faith. And so if we're going to express this uncommon love as well, just as Jesus did, faith is huge. It's the starting point, and it is what continues us down the path of living as he did. Think about this. Faith does something. Faith does two things this morning, and here's how I want you to think about it. Faith does two things so that we can love like Jesus loved. You've seen the starting point. We've got to believe. We've got to trust. We've got to come to him just like Matthew 5 tells us to. But faith does something. First of all, it produces in us this changed heart, a love by taking stuff away. Because if you're like me, everything in me, I mean, I, yeah, I want to love. I mean, if you were to ask me today, yeah, I want to love that person, I want to love that person, I want to love that person. But for me to truly 
love, things have to be removed. Because if we're all honest in here this morning, we have barriers. Whether it's baggage in the past, whether what what we've gone through, or maybe it's generational, maybe it's cultural, whatever it may be, whatever it's attached to, We've got these barriers, and so what faith does is faith comes in, and it takes away from the heart, and it gives to the heart. And so here's what faith does. It it takes away some things. The first thing it takes away, it takes away guilt. Because if, man, we're burdened with guilt, it's hard to love. It's hard to love. It also takes away fear. It's hard to love when we're fearful. It's hard to love when trust has been broken and we're afraid that if we take that step and we love again, we're gonna be hurt again. And so faith does something. It takes fear away. And not only that, faith takes greed away. It takes greed away. A greedy heart cannot love. The only way a greedy heart expresses love is by self-seeking, indulgent, trying to get something. And so faith does something. It takes things away. It takes the barriers out of the way, and it provides for us, as a result, this movement forward, this positive impulse, if you will, to move us to love out of obedience to Christ. And so think about it. What will move you and I to take on inconveniences, to be willing to suffer so we can love? Faith is the only thing. What will propel us to go greet a stranger if I'm an introvert or if I'm shy? Faith. What will propel you and I to go to an enemy and pursue reconciliation? Maybe to give when I've never given before or to speak to those at work about Jesus Christ, to maybe invite a neighbor to church or to a Christmas Eve service at five o'clock this coming week. What, what causes us to do that is a, is a faith, is faith. None of this just happens. You don't wake up in the morning and say, hey, I want to love like Jesus and, and love enemies like he did. But faith propels us. This new heart propels us. We have a new appetite for God. We have a new thrill and a joy of experiencing God's power. And so faith relies on God and loves to see him work. And so as a result, we want to love like him. That's what faith produces. Just an early Christmas gift to you. John Piper says this. He says, faith pushes us into the current where God's power flows most freely. And that current is the current of love. Faith produces love because in acts of love, we feel the power of conquering our sin. We feel the power of conquering Satan. We feel the power of transforming the world. We're those who know the depth and the breadth and the height and the length of the love of God. And we're more than conquerors the most when we love others. Paul says in Christ Jesus, it is faith working in love. So that's where uncommon love for you and I, that's where it's got to start. That's where it's got to keep 
continuing. Faith is huge. So what does it look like practiced real quick this morning? I mean, really quick. <laughs> Thanks, Prince. Look at verse 21 real quick, okay? He says, you've heard that it's been said by the ancients, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, that means idiot, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says you fool or moron shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. So let's stop there for a second. If in our hearts we feel that way towards somebody, or even say that, what he's saying right here, you are guilty enough to go into hell. Let that land, right? And then look at verse 23. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother is something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go and first be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. And so I want to start here because we, we hear Jesus addressing the hate that's in hearts. Not just in language and words, but the hate that's in hearts. And so where's our heart this morning? Are we harboring hate? Are we harboring grudges? Jesus says it shouldn't be. Because if we have hate, it's as though we're murdering that person. That's how serious it is. Now, don't, don't just read that and say, oh, well, that's, you know, that's pretty strong language, and thanks for getting just an ethical point across. No, this is more than just ethical. This is like soul, big-time, death and life, eternity, big-time stuff. So we've got to sit back and take serious our discipleship and God transforming us to be more like him kind of stuff. This isn't just, oh, that sounds good, Jesus. I'm glad you're one up in the Pharisees. No, that is not it. He said, no, this is what the gospel does. It changes hearts, not just mere practice and action, yes, but it changes hearts. To where so much so, if you go to a worship setting, he says, because it says therefore, and so this is all connected, he says, if you go into a worship setting and you're gonna present your offering, he says, and you remember that somebody has a grudge with you because of something you did to them, stop everything and go and seek to be reconciled with that person. So what that means is, man, if we have hate in our heart, we can't just walk in here happy-go-lucky. I love what Bonhoeffer says, Dietrich. He says, when we come before God with hearts full of contempt and unreconciled with our neighbors, we are both individually and as a congregation worshiping an idol. The incarnation of Christ into this world is the ultimate reason why the service of God cannot be divorced from the service of man. And he who says he loves God and hates his brother is a liar. That's what Jesus means. But if we've offended someone, we must take it serious and go and pursue reconciliation. We're not responsible ultimately for the reconciliation. God is the one who does that. But what does this all mean? It, it means that what our heart is like is a big deal to God. And so what is our heart like this morning? Is there hate? Is there grudges? Do we need to go to somebody that we've wronged and seek forgiveness. 
and pursue reconciliation. God says, that's how serious I am about this uncommon love. And then look at this. Look at verse 43. So this is one thought. Well, here's another one. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbors and hate your enemy. Pharisees taking some liberty there on messing with Deuteronomy a little bit. Then in verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's what Jesus says. And Jesus goes deeper. He goes greater than the teaching of the Pharisees and gets to the heart. And then he says in verse 45, the purpose is this, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. We're called to love our enemies. Again, not mere ethical teaching, but this is the kind of love that rises out of this great foundation of grace and love that we just talked about. This is how Jesus loved us. And our love for others is simply that. It's the fruit of God, the Father's love for us. And it overflows through us to others. We're inclined to do what he does because now we want to be like him. We want to take on his character, his attributes, and love enemies just as he does. And something happens. When you and I do that, we become what he says in Matthew 5, 16. He says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. What's the good work? One thing is loving your enemies. And when people see you loving enemies, when they see you loving them, in spite of differences, in spite of beliefs, the light of the glorious gospel begins to shine brightly. People will be drawn to it. People will honor and glorify the Father. We're told in Matthew 7, verse 12, that we're to do what? Treat others as we want to be treated, right? But there's something huge in Matthew 7, verse 12, the golden rule that, that I think we miss sometimes, is there's a first word in that verse. It's, the first word is therefore. And right before that, Jesus talked about how the Father loves to give good gifts. And he says, go to your heavenly Father and ask, because he loves to good gifts. Give good gifts. What's that good gift that Jesus is really talking about? Giving you the inclination, the ability, the power to go and love others how you want to be treated. That's the good gift that God gives. Because guess what? On our own, we can't do it. It has to be gifted to us. And that's what God does. So here's a question this morning I have in light of this as we close is, who are our enemies? Who are our enemies? Because here he says, love neighbors. Then he says, love enemies. We have all this here. Are these two commands? No, they're one. Think about how Jesus talks about neighbors. If you go to Luke, he gets asked the question, who's my neighbor? Jesus says, the story of the good Samaritan to help explain who one's neighbor is. And so here's the deal. You and I are called to love our neighbors even if they're your enemy. That's what we're called to. What kind of enemies? Well, look at verse 44. It says this, 
But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It could be that severe. That's who your enemy could be. It could be someone who persecutes you, who insults you, who wants to kill you and take your life. And Jesus says, love them. Look at verse 45. Those who treat us maybe a little less severely. He says this. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus says you're to love the righteous and unrighteous who have something against you. The unrighteous we know are those who defy God's laws. They don't submit to God. They don't submit to his will. They're contrary to us. But it could be the righteous or the unrighteous who are your enemies, depending on what's going on. And Jesus said, this is a little less severe, but none the case, you love them. It could be a rebellious child in your home. It could be a neighbor who doesn't like the way you keep your yard. Who knows? A little less severe than verse 44, but look at verse 46. He says this, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. So who is he telling us to love? Anyone who doesn't love you. Woo, that's a little tough, right? But that's who we're called to love. So we're not to stop loving because somebody offends us. We're not to stop loving because somebody dishonors us. We're not to stop loving because somebody hurts our feelings, according to what Jesus says here, or even threatens you or even kills you, according to what Jesus says here. That's what he's saying. Let's not add anything or take anything. And then, how do we do that, though? Real simply, but hard. That's what he says. Verse 47, he says, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? What's the word? Greet. Jesus says, you love your enemy by greeting them. Greet non-brothers, non-Christians. Say hi. Don't stick up a nose in snobbery. And don't think because of what you've seen in the news or, or because of how somebody's dressed or a long beard or they're some kind of nationality that I shouldn't say hi to them or should be afraid of them instead. And see, that's where faith must come in and push those out. Let me ask this question. What happens to the likes of the Apostle Paul if he never comes to know the uncommon grace of God? Paul's a terrorist, right? I mean, he's a terrorist. And the uncommon love of God comes to him, and the disciples love him after that. They had every reason to not like him because he was killing those or being a part of those who were killing Christians. And this is where rubber hits the road, and this is where, this is hard, man. This is hard. It's hard for me to say, but Jesus says here, greet him. Greet him. That's one way you love him. It's one way you love your enemy, no matter who it is, no matter who it is. Verse 45, he says this, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. What is rain? What is sun? It's physical things we need. We need it. And so Jesus says, you love others who are your enemies by giving food, by giving water. Just as he says in Romans 1220, but if your enemy is hungry, you feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, you give him something to drink. We help them with ordinary life things. 
That's how we love them. And then verse 44, lastly, he says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for them, even those who persecute you. Jesus modeled this. He modeled this on the cross when he says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Stephen modeled it as he was being stoned to death. He says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Wow. So let me ask this question. What if the church, I don't mean, I mean, yeah, big C, but what if the Ridge Church, what if we started loving like that, where we started greeting enemies, where we started taking prayer, care of practical needs of, of enemies? What if we started praying for enemies? I mean, what if we started loving that way, the righteous and the unrighteous, those who maybe oppose us severely, those who maybe oppose us a little less severely? What if we started having that kind of heart where guilt and fear and greed all got pushed away, and we started loving like Jesus. Why does that really happen? You see, that's what God did in Christmas. You see, that's what he did in sending Jesus. He sent Jesus to love enemies. And you might be saying this morning, good night, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know. And that's real. I mean, it's just real. But here in Matthew 5, what he's saying is someone who has a heart that is pure in heart, that is mournful over their sin, that is poor in spirit, recognizing they've got nothing without Jesus, someone who's been so radically changed, they have this new way of living, they live this way. And yeah, not perfectly, but they seek to live this way. And how do they do that? Well, I think real simply is this. Is they look at a place like Matthew 5, verse 11 through 12, where he says, hey, there are these that are going to insult you, persecute you, even kill you. But he says this, remember that you have a greater reward in heaven. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus says, listen, what's the worst thing that could happen to you? He says, you could die. But according to Jesus, he would say, how is that so bad? And so if that's the worst thing, and in the end, that's a victorious thing, then what you got to lose? He said, because the reward in heaven is great. And so here's how I take that, is I've got to get my mind off this earth and off this world, and I've got to get my mind off the way people treat me. And at the end of the day, I got to let things roll. Does that mean I look past injustices and don't seek justice? No, I'm not saying that. But what it does mean, at the end of the day, how others treat me does not deem how I treat them. I treat others the way I want to be treated, even if they mistreat me. And the only way we can do that is when our mind and our heart is set on above. And we remember that we have a greater reward in heaven than anything we could ever gain on this earth. Now, at the end of the day, that's hard. And so I pray that we would all pray, Lord, give us that kind of heart. Give us that kind of heart. Let's pray.